Welcome to CSET. Today we're going to be talking to Aaron Lund about Syria. I know that Syria might be something <laughs> most of these episodes at, at, at the moment have been uh, centered on, but one thing that I've been really interested in is how Syria actually works, how Damascus works, uh, and uh, what we mean when we talk about the, the Damascus, what we mean when we talk about the regime, and what we mean when we talk about the, the, the ability of the regime to, to moderate. So uh, I'd like to welcome Aaron Lund, uh, a fellow at the Century Foundation. He's written extensively about Syria. And uh, yeah, Aaron, thanks for coming on CSET. Hi, thanks for having me. So we tried doing this one time before uh, a few weeks back and had <laughs> some technical dif difficulties. Uh, no, we didn't. We, we had, I was the technical <laughs> difficulty. I failed to record properly. So. <laughs> well, something like that. Uh, hopefully this time it'll yeah. be better. Um, but I thought I'd start off with the same question, um, maybe phrased a little bit differently. But what is Damascus? What is it when we talk about Damascus? Who is it we actually mean, and who runs Damascus? Well, uh, Damascus is a is a lovely city, but in this case also it's shorthand for the for the Syrian government, I guess, and the Syrian regime, um, and who runs that and who controls the regime and how it works all of those are are questions that i don't really have an answer to and i doubt many people do and i think this is really the sort of the the, the million dollar question of the syrian conflict because you have had uh, uh, people in the united states and brussels and paris and even stockholm probably and Moscow and Tehran and everywhere else sitting and strategizing about Syria. And this has always been the question they come back to. You know, what happens if Bashar al-Assad were to resign or die or be, you know, decentralize his regime? Will he do it? Can he do it? How would it work? And so forth. And most of the time, uh, I mean, I'm not privy to <laughs> the internal deliberations of people in Moscow or Tehran or for even even Stockholm but I think most of the time this seems to come back to the to one single answer and that is we don't really know um, so it's a it's a complicated place um, it's a complicated regime and it always was I think um, even before Bashar came to power in in the year 2000 um, but I mean the after that you know in, introducing this with by, by saying that I don't know the we can we can at least speculate <laughs> a little bit uh, I think the the short answer is I think that Bashar al-Assad is in power. Uh, he's the guy you go to if you want something done in Syria. Then below Bashar, you have a lot of sort of second-order decision makers who who tend to be you know members of the family or related to the family or friends of someone who's powerful and you know that kind of thing within the security services and in 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 government or in, in various other positions that may or may not be publicly visible. Um, and then they have their own networks and that's kind of how the regime is built. And of course you also have a very you know meticulously arranged system of, of uh, uh, formal institutions. You have a cabinet, you have a parliament, you have a, you know, a, a supreme court and you have all that stuff. But the real sort of the, the real um, site of power inside the regime is clearly the family or more specifically Bashar himself and I think it worked that way under Hafez al-Assad uh, who ruled Syria from 1970 until 2000 when he died uh, and it still works that way in many respects uh, it has changed during the war because the whole I mean the regime has been weakened in many ways it has had to rely on foreign allies Russia and Iran primarily uh, to a very great extent both economically and militarily uh, and uh, you know the 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 regime has become more uh, I shouldn't say decentralized, but it's become maybe maybe the networked character of the regime has become more visible. If 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 you follow what I'm trying to say here, that the the networks that already existed within the the armed forces and the security services and these militias and within the Ba'ath Party and so forth, they've sort of come to the surface. Uh, when the regime had to fight back, they, you know, these networks began to mobilize yeah. militias and things of this sort. Uh, so 
the regime has definitely changed a lot since 2011. It hasn't grown more democratic. Uh, it has grown probably a bit different, but but that too is hard to to uh, you know. It's it's all kind of vague and opaque. <laughs> it's a. I think it, in many ways it probably reminds of the the rest of the Middle East. In any case, I mean, you, in Syria, it's it's yeah. a bit fragmented. Um, it's been for civil war. I, I doubt any country that's been for civil war for nine years or so um, is going to have any semblance of a, of um, of transparency. Uh, probably, yeah. but I mean, if you look at Iraq or any of the neighboring states, you'll have some sort of a. I, I don't like to use the, the, the term deep state, um, but I think that's probably mm. the closest thing that will get to, to how some of the, the real um, mechanics of, of governance works. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I think Syria is actually one of the places in the Middle East uh, that exemplifies this best, I think. I, another one I would mention is, is Algeria, yeah, for example. Yeah, of course. Because, I mean, even though the, the figure of the president is clearly sort of central to everything and he really has all that power constitutionally and in practice the networks around him tend to be deliberately obscure and obscured from view in many cases and it's it's you know kind of the the regime never it's never straightforward you know if they want to run a conversation with another government it's not necessarily going to happen through the foreign ministry they might send some envoy who has no official standing but still represents the president and it's it's it's, it's very sort of uh, it, it it has its roots in many ways in the intelligence services of of syria in the 60s and they've preserved a lot of bad habits from yeah. <laughs> from that time and maybe habits that also made sure that they're still in power so from their point of view it might not be a bad habit yeah i mean uh, everyone's probably going to debate what's best for syria but a, a, a lot of these um from my experience, in, in any case, a lot of these governments believe themselves to be the state. And uh, in that sense, yeah. you've, you, uh, anyone who studies Middle Eastern politics or whatever has heard the, the, the you know, debate between state survival and regime's survival and how do states act and what do they, you know, what are they interested in? And almost always regime survival kind of comes out on top as, um, as a way to read how these states work. Um, yeah. so in, in that sense, it, it makes complete se it sense for the, the regime to, to act, to act the way it does. If it doesn't care about the country yeah. in, in reality, if, if territory is more of an idealistic quality rather than a, a real r r kind of reified ideal to have, if it doesn't actually care about the part, you know, Idlib, if it doesn't actually care about mm. these peripheral areas, um, except nominally, um, then it wouldn't matter. You would have to have Damascus and the Damascus island um, and mm. some economically important areas uh, like yeah. uh, oil fields and so on. Um, yeah, I, I think it's maybe a combination of those two things that on the one hand, you have the sort of the the cynical perspective that the regime survival is, is the priority and, uh, you know, interests of the ruling clique and so forth. But on the other hand, I think it would probably be a mistake to assume that everyone in power is driven by these extremely cynical sort of uh, uh, views of what they're doing. I think people in power um, in Syria, like in the West or anywhere else, tend to be trapped in their own uh, illusions or, or delusions about um, what they represent and what they are and how their country works and what their role is in history and, you know, uh, all of these things. And I, I would not be surprised in the slightest if if uh, uh, Bashar and or the people around him uh, honestly perceive themselves as Syria's only hope. Uh, it's you know they may have a slightly different view of what Syria is or should be than their opponents but uh, but they still think they're doing the right thing um, for for not for just for themselves but for the country uh, and I think you know it's it's very hard to fight a war where uh, you have to kill a lot of people and your friends and your family will be threatened and some of them will die and there will be, you know, all this hard work and suffering without actually being motivated by some sort of belief. And if need be, you will, uh, 
<laughs> redesign your beliefs to fit the situation, I think. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that that's probably is an elo eloquent way of theorizing how, how they believe it. It's probably impossible to to gauge. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. If if you ask some people in Europe, they'll probably say something like that. that these are monsters. They don't care about anything. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't. I mean, monsters care about things, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, even the fairy tales they don't. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, the without sort of without being uh, taking a moral perspective on it at all, I think you can easily see that many of the people fighting for the Syrian government or for any other party of the war, uh, they believe in what they're doing. They're yeah. prepared to die for what they're doing, uh, whether it's out of you know faith or uh, just commitment to a cause or pride or you know, protecting your interests or your family or whatever, hunger for power, many things. And these you know, all uh, come together, I guess. And I mean, I've, I've spoken to, during the war, I've spoken to a lot of people on the opposition side, including rebel commanders and others. Um, and, you know, you can definitely say that within the Syrian uh, insurgency and the rebellion, a lot of that is... You know, even though it's a rebellion against Assad, it's also, to a large extent, a kind of a warlord economy where there's a lot of smuggling and trading and kidnapping and and all sorts of funny business going on. And many of these people are seem to be deeply involved in that, but they're also, you know, they seem completely sincere in their opposition to the regime. And that's sort of how they, the rest of the, the all the unsavory stuff gets explained by the fact that we're fighting this regime. And I think it's probably the same thing in, in the regime, you yeah. know? I mean, get, getting to the regime, it, it, this is one of the things that I think a lot of people might seem, um, might find a little bit ambiguous. And I'm not very clear about it myself, but if, if you had to say, if you had to, to define what the pillars of power are in, in Damascus, huh. if you've got Assad on, uh, uh, on top, which, I mean, you obviously believe he's on, he's on top, and it's, some people, I mean, most people would probably agree with you, that even though I've talked to some people that, that uh, might not. If he's on top, then who's the next level and so on? What pillars keep him up? Yeah. Um, again, this is the stuff that no one really knows. Yeah. <laughs> um, not sure Assad even knows this stuff. You know, it's never been tested who's, who's second in yeah. command. Um, for good reason, I think, because then my, my, they wouldn't be second in command for very long. I mean, yeah, exactly. Either you're first in command or you're not very yeah. distant. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, the I think the um, uh, my my sort of working hypothesis about how this works, uh, a very vague hypothesis, but still, is that Bashar is sort of the ultimate arbiter of, of power in Syria. You have a lot of uh, powerful figures around him, um, but their interests and their decisions will not always align, and uh, they need things to happen within the government they can't do things independently because the partly because you know stuff is complicated but also because the system is wired that way you know the security services are sort of enmeshed with the army and cross pollinated within the both both party you for the you know it's, it's a method of coup proofing yeah. uh, you're not supposed to be able to, to mobilize any part of the system without other parts of the system noticing yeah. you, you trip wires all the time um so when when all these interests clash um you you need people more senior to yourself to take the decisions and to mobilize the resources that you need so you continually you, you pitch decisions upward and they ultimately will land on the president's desk and he will sort of sign the order or not sign the order and so people are continually working to lobby the the president or the people around the president or whoever will take that specific decision uh, make that specific decision, um, uh, and and uh, and that seems to be serious internal politics, more or less. And you can do this through different networks. You can do it through your, if you know a guy in the security services, or you can do it through the Ba'ath Party, or you can do it through uh, this businessman who has powerful friends, and and there's all this kind of elite politics going on. But but back to your question, I think. So you have Bashar there uh, as the most central node in the system. Uh, obviously, he doesn't have complete oversight. He doesn't. He can't, you know, run everything at once. 
Uh, below him, certainly you have Mahar, al-Assad, the brother, who runs a fair chunk of the army and armed forces, we, I think, or we think. Um, and then there's a bunch of other uh, people who are connected to the family or connected to the president or trusted for some other reason who are in mainly in the security services and the security establishment. Um, some of them well-known uh, security chiefs, some of them not so well-known uh, advisors to Bashar al-Assad who, you know, they, they uh, may have an office next to his and they talk to him all day, which makes them super powerful, but they don't have a really a public-facing role. Um, so, and then of course you have the Ba'ath Party, which is sort of, not less a political party than sort of an administrative surveillance mobilization body within the regime. Um, uh, sort of one strand of regime power runs through the, through the Ba'ath Party. Same thing with the parliament and the cabinet and uh, the governors who are sort of the president's uh, executive appendage in, in the provinces and then you have separate networks from the security services. Each the the four big security services all operate sort of independently, and and that's how it works. Um, and then of course the economy, which is uh, part of it, is uh, less today, I think, but still to an extent old money that may have predated the Ba'ath Party yeah. and sort of assimilated into the regime, or still coexists with it more or less uneasily, or. Uh, on friendly terms, perhaps, uh, but then also a lot of people who rose through their association with these military circles at the at the core of the regime, um, who may be in some cases today, especially sons of uh, former military officers uh, or, or other powerful people. Uh, in the, in the news today, Rami <laughs> Makhlouf, who's the son of, he's the cousin of Bashar, who who. Uh, and he became sort of the, the most powerful businessman in, in Syria, yeah. um, rose alongside Bashar to power. I, Imam uh, Makhlouf, so, I guess, yeah. today. Who, mm, maybe sorry. Mullah Makhlouf. I'm not really sure today. He's, uh... <laughs> yeah, he's, he, he's, he's, he's found religion. <laughs> <laughs> he does seem to have done that. He's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's been an interesting roller coaster, that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, maybe we shouldn't really laugh at Syria, right? Uh, but um, it has been interesting. But it, it, the reason yeah. I wonder about that is because these. No I I know some of the history of of Syria. I, I know it through the Kurdish lens, so it it, mm -hmm. it obviously isn't complete. But uh, one of the things I was interested in was the power dynamics between Hafez and uh, Turkey um, during Demiryo mm -hmm. and. Um, the, the kind of balancing uh, Hafez did with the PKK and um, mm. how, how he kind of challenged Turkey. It was always kind of obvious to me that Syria was the weaker party militarily, diplomatically, economically, but still they seemed to push every negotiation, no matter what. They didn't seem to moderate any of their demands, um, no matter what. And to, today oh. I, I, I see a lot of that. Um, in these negotiations that go nowhere, you've got the G Geneva, yeah. you've got the, uh, even the, the regional stuff between the SDC, like the, the, the Kurdish led SDF's, uh, political mm. wing, um, and their negotiations with Damascus, it seems to have, you know, there's a, this, the facade stuff always works out. They talk something about, um, uh, we're all Syrians, uh, the territorial integrity of the state. We need that, you know, this, this and that. But um, they never actually concede a single thing. And I'm wondering if this has to do with how the state is built up or if it's an inherent thing, if it's that giving something would equal weakness um, or giving something is impossible because the power dynamics just mm. don't work that way, that if... If Assad says something, then he has to give something from somewhere else. That they and yeah. these pillars might come out of him. I'm not. I'm not really sure if that's true. Uh, what's your reading? Well, I think it is probably both of those things and a third thing. Um, third thing. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's it's um, partly that the regime. Um, 
is unwilling to give these things because because it fears some of the concessions it's being asked to make. Um, it's a paranoid regime. So, I mean, they have, from their point of view, they have legitimate reasons to fear these things. And then plus, on top of that, they're also very paranoid. They think that everything we give, you know, every we give them a, a, a finger that will take the, the arm, you know. Um, and some of the things that seem like fairly simple demands to the people making them, like why don't you negotiate in the constitutional committee, or yep. why don't you give uh, self-rule to the uh, SDF? From the regime point of view, these things seem like uh, uh, you know Trojan horses for regime yeah. change. Is that a paranoid view? Yes, but there's an element of truth to it as well because of the way the regime is built, it has trouble coping with these demands. It can't just start uh, engaging with with uh, other political forces on an equal level. That will sort of unspool things within the regime and the 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 way they've built their politics. And it can't just allow other forces to control territory in Syria, especially not on an ethnic basis, if that's the ask, you know, because they have so many other similar regions that that could be inspired to to call for more autonomy if that were to happen. so it's both uh, uh, a feeling that they can't give this thing, and then it's the uh, uh, the habit of of just not ever giving anything. Yeah. They've always negotiated this way. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you look back at the negotiations with Israel, the uh, all the stuff they've done in Lebanon, uh, negotiations with Iraq, trade negotiations, everything. They tend to just push things to the brink yep. every single time, and then they are willing to take quite a lot of pain uh, on the you know, assuming that their opponent, if it's the United States or whomever else, will probably be pulling out first. Yep. And it has worked for them generally in history. Uh, you had Bashar, for example, his sort of formative foreign ex- foreign policy experience as president was the the pressure he was under in the mid. Uh, 2000s, the mid mid zeros, yeah, yeah. Uh, from the Iraq War 2003 uh, through the uh, uh, the Lebanon crisis that begins in 2004 and escalates with the uh, uh, the killing of Rafiq al Hariri in 2005, um, and then the the, the Israel Lebanon War 2006. You have this whole thing, and he comes under an enormous amount of pressure, and and he gets through that. He survives that, and you know, people were, uh, quite a lot of people were thinking that maybe he will fall or he will, you know, definitely be weakened and become sort of a, he's not, he's not up to the job that his father left him to do. But then he sort of survives that job by just playing according to his father's playbook, which is never concede, yeah. you know, never concede ever, anything, just inflict pain on your opponent, take the pain they inflict on you, eventually they will tire. Uh, and when people talk about Hafez al-Assad having been a master strategist, um, you know, Nixon, uh, Kissinger, I think, was, just praised the guy as a brilliant uh, tactician and things like that. I think to an extent that was true. He was a smart guy, um, a ruthless uh, figure who, who mm-hmm. played his a poor hand very well. But... Uh, the other side of that is that, you know, most of the moves the Syrian government tends to make is just to double down on its position and wait people out. Yep. Uh, and that has worked. I'm not sure it's working this time very well. Um, it's not necessarily working, you know, if you look at the large sort of historical scope, Syria could probably be in a better place than it is today, you know? It could. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, but from the regime point of view, they're faced with one crisis after another, and the way you deal with crises is you you dig down and you basically hold your breath and you fight until the opponent has left you. It, uh, yeah, I, I think you make a good point about things being slightly different. I mean, it's it's not half as his time. Yeah. I, I think I, if if you if you look at Turkish military, uh, I, I would call it an aggression, but maybe assertiveness in the region, um, mm. it's shifted dramatically from Hafez's time. Uh, in Hafez's time, there was, yeah. I think, between um, maybe the, the early 90s and uh, and um, 
and the, the end of the Ottoman Empire in the early 90s, uh, Turkey was only uh, in, I think, uh, Korea and maybe one other overseas engagement, basically nothing. They tried their best hmm. to stay within their borders. Uh, and now, obviously not. You've got um, <laughs> yeah. the, you've got northern yeah. uh, Cyprus, obviously, but you've also got... Uh, yeah. Partly, I mean, that might have not have been Turkey's fault entirely, uh, to be fair. Um, but maybe yeah. engaging and staying on, that might have been, that's another story. But then you've got northern, yeah, northern right. Iraq, you've got... <laughs> A lot of blame to go Yeah, around. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cyprus is not a fun story. That's another episode, I guess. But um, but the, the point is that things are different. Uh, Turkey's assertive. And Turkey th- sees less cost, I think, in s- sticking around. Mm. Uh, it might see... Yeah. Si- it not annexing. It's it's not Hatay. It doesn't have a, a, a close to a t- Turkish majority or anything like that. Um, but mm. it can definitely play uh, as a good pawn. If you've got a statelet mm. in northern Syria, why would you abandon it? It's a great source of mercenaries, potentially, if you've got regional conflicts popping up. Uh, you've already yeah. seen some of that in Libya, but, I mean, it, that wasn't very dramatic, to be fair. Um, mm. It got a lot of media attention, but I'm not really sure how many people they they sent. But if you've got something flaring up in uh, the rest of Syria at some point, or if you've got Iraq heading in the wrong direction, yeah. uh, or whatever, then it, it makes sense. Or even uh, the yeah, Gulf. I mean, I think. I, yeah, sorry. Uh, pardon, um, but even the Gulf, but 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 also just it's a, it's a very low investment. Um, if you mm. want to push your own refugees, for example, back into Syria, it's a good, uh, you know, it's a it's a good place to put them. Uh, so far, yeah. if the rest of the rest of the country is collapsing, it makes yeah. sense. I, I think. I mean the. Of the, of the ones you mentioned, I think Libya is really the outlier here because Turkey's involvement in northern Iraq has to do with, you know, it's, it's basically PKK-related. Uh, Turkey's involvement in Syria, to a large extent, is also <laughs> PKK-related, but it's, it's also uh, Turkey's own uh, interventions yeah. through, through first rebels and then directly. But it's been kind of a gradual process that, you know, from the Turkish point of view, they, they've felt that they're sucked into this conflict. Others might view it that Turkey very actively sucks itself, yeah. in, itself into. <laughs> but but uh, nevertheless, it's been kind of a gradual thing. It wasn't, it wasn't like Turkey had a plan in 2011 that we're going to annex northern Syria. That, no. that just kind of came about through a series of weird decisions. And now they're maybe, maybe they'll, they'll just go with that. Uh, but but Libya was really sort of a war of choice in a different way. I mean, Syria was also, in, but but it was a incremental reactive choices, I think. Um, and I'm not saying that either one was good or bad. I'm just saying they're different. Um, but but with Syria, Turkey's role in Syria today, I mean, it's uh, I think inertia is a powerful force. Well, first of all, within the Syrian government for reasons we've discussed, but also within, you know, the where, the, 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 the place that the Syrian conflict has arrived at, where you have all these forces sort of pressed up against each other. You have Turkey, you have Russia, you have Iran, you have the United States, you have Assad, SDF, all of that stuff. Obviously, uh, it's a very painful stalemate for most of the people involved. And I think some of these... Um, conflict lines will break and we will have territorial and political changes but some of it might just freeze into place yeah. as well because well as, as you as you put it turkey has a you know they didn't really mean to come into possession of all this stuff in in syria yeah. but now that they do have it it's there's a it's a lot more work leaving it than exactly. <laughs> just hanging on to it uh, i mean there was um, I, I remember the, the maybe there was 3 years ago um, that Turkey installed the Turkish post office in northern yeah, Syria. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, most people just went, hi, huh? post office. You know, that's funny. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why it was funny, but some people thought it was. Um, but I th- I thought, okay, cool. Turkey's putting some in, in infrastructure in place and they're probably going to integrate mm-hmm. it to some level into the municipal network that the Turkey has going on at the border. And they did. And they've done, yeah. I mean, to be fair to them, they've done a very good job at some of this stuff um, in how to, to stabilize 
the non-Kurdish areas that they've um, mm. they've they administered. The Kurdish areas, however, are a nightmare, and uh, that's actually yeah. covered in, in another episode. Um, but but the th- the thing is, th- these areas would be impo- It would be so hard to to let them go because you you would have upheavals and you would have um, you ha- you had to have to disengage them from Turkish infrastructure to begin with. Um, yeah. you'd have to you'd have to re- reintegrate them into uh, the government and how would they the, mm-hmm. the populace accept that it would be very very difficult so it might be easier to just have it as a frozen conflict like a state statelet like Abkhazia oh. or the, the Donbass or something like that following exactly. Russia's lead. I mean it's, it's just it's a it's a just one long story of mission creep the whole Turkish intervention in Syria yeah and the U.S. one as well. I mean, yeah, it was all Obama was like, "We're not going to put any boots on the ground. We're not going to give rebels any weapons because we'll end up occupying Syria." And I was, everyone said, "No, <laughs> of course you won't. Yeah. That's ridiculous." And here we are. <laughs> yeah. Mish- so mission um, creep in Syria go hand in hand. Yeah, um, and but I yeah, and I, I think re- regarding Turkey's um, Turkey's uh, sort of in in so far as Erdogan has has a like a long-term plan for this, and I'm not at all persuaded that he does. But if he does, um, or if he develops one, uh, I think, like like you say, I think, like, look at like Abkhazia or, or these places, uh, uh, frozen conflict-style arrangements with separatist governments propped up, uh, yeah. some limited recognition maybe. But then again, you know, I wouldn't entirely exclude that this could over time slide into uh, a process that ends up with some you know an attempt at more straightforward annexation i think you look at the golan heights and the west bank and this stuff you know i'm I'm sure erdogan must have thought if they can do it (laughs) (laughs) why can't we do it i mean there's always an element of um, ethnic conflict that that goes on here Uh, yeah. In the beginning, there was some some ideas of you know how many Syrians would it take, uh, pious Syrians would it take to make sure that Erdogan keeps or Erdogan keeps winning elections, um, mm. and uh, it would take a lot apparently at this point because uh, the the polls are, are tanking. But who knows? You know, uh, there's a new you know. Yeah, but they haven't they haven't given citizenship to many. They anywhere. haven't no. Um, and because um, they tried to give it to some, I think in some, it's a bit uh, ambiguous at the moment. Um, but there was un- yeah. upheavals; people were very upset, and he realized quickly that this isn't a great idea. So, trying to give citizenship yeah. to three million Syrians or so on, I think it's an impossibility. Um, mm. They could give them something like uh, residency permits within, you know, or what they do to Turkish Cypriots, for example, that they would have, uh, they would recognize their statelet and then accept that they would go to Turkish universities and um, have Mm. some kind of benefit system going that way. Um, That would make sense. Um, And that would be probably a lot cheaper. Um, I mean, this really is a big issue that, that it's one of these things, you know, the, what will become of the Syrian refugee diaspora because they, they're, they're in really, yeah, they have, they have, you look at the whole region and everything is kind of, you know, really bad at this point. Yeah. Uh, but the refugees are really at the receiving end of, of this because when the jobs, when there are no jobs, when there are, when there's ethnic tension or, or political tension or whatever sort of tension, they always end up uh, being, being punished. And the, the, that's also kind of a cliche, but the Palestinianization yeah. of the Syrian diaspora is it's it is happening. You know, you you don't. It's not going to be a point when people say, "Well, now they're Palestinians. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They they have the same status as Palestinians." But it's a very gradual process. You know, the Palestinians in 1952 were also not permanent refugees. They were refugees waiting to go back and have their issues straightened out. Yeah. 1972 still. That was kind of the framework people were operating under because there was too much mental pain and anguish involved with thinking anything else. Yeah. Now it's different, but now the problem is unsolvable. So, and you have something similar going on with Syria, and that's a that's a big problem. It's it's not even primarily a problem in Turkey because Turkey is so big, yeah. but Jordan and Lebanon especially, 
um, yeah. I mean, it's a kind of a depressing, <laughs> depressing reality, but I think yeah, very, you, you hit very. the nail on the head. Um, it's pal, it's it's like Palestine, but but the, you've got another layer though because they they could technically return to Syria, um, they could technically go to government areas, and uh, there's been amnesties and there's there's been the the settlements and so on, having your cases settled. Uh, but mm. there's also been how the government actually reacts. On the other hand, you've got Mahabharata actually yeah. kidnapping people, still having people disappear. Uh, people still go yeah. to jail. Um, people still killed. Uh, there's still yeah. massive instability economically. The Caesar Act is probably going to make that much, much worse. Um, yeah. it, it isn't looking great. So e even if they could return and they were guaranteed some sort of safety, it, it, yeah. What is there to return to? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's those two things. I mean, the government behavior is one problem, uh, and that relates to what the government actually does, and it also relates to what people think think the government might yeah. do, and they're not sure, and they don't know, and how could they know? Um, because there's no transparency. There are no you know Red, Red Cross or uh, UN missions that go around reliably and, and figure out what happened to people who returned or who surrendered and, and and applied for amnesty are they still you know are they still not in jail three years yeah. later or are they what happened no one knows um that's something that would be really useful i think for for uh if that could be something you'd push for in negotiations for example yeah. uh just to get that information because there are a lot of syrians who will have to make those life and death decisions based on basically no information exactly um and and but the other thing is of course as you as you said the what what is there to go back to the country is destroyed uh, part of it is physical destruction but but then I think the just the the, the social the fabric the, the, yeah exactly like this, how 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 the society has been ripped up and it, not just people talk about sects and sectarianism that's a big part of it of course. Yeah. But also just the way that you're, you know, if you, you're from this village outside of Homs and you want to go back and it turns out half of the village is gone, the other half is, you know, living somewhere else and some new people have moved in because the houses were empty and no one, you know, and, and it's, it, it's just a mess. Yeah. And there's, there are no jobs, there's no infrastructure, there's, you know, there's no, there's no hope, basically. People are trying to leave Syria rather than return. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that it's it's uh, <laughs> it's depressing to to say the least. Well, let's hope that that improves somewhat. I I doubt. Let's hope it will in the short term. I'm I'm yeah. not really sure. If anyone asked me about a year ago, um, how close are we to ending the war? How close to, are we to seeing the the end? I would have probably said yeah. within a few months. I think we might see something. I'm not as sure anymore because uh, yeah, I'm not as sure because we've got actors kind of going their own way and interests changing. Mm. Turkey's a, a major one that we might be seeing the in, an investment that goes beyond what we've seen before. It kind of looks at it like that in some ways because of the relation to to Russia disintegrating. Um, it's tied into Libya, but it's also tied into how. Uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, it's tied into a few things that uh, mm. that the relationship seems strained, at least outwardly. Um, and it seems to be making some some differences on the ground in Idlib. So, yeah, I mean, it's too early to tell, but it, it seems like something is changing. You could see a Turkey that sees itself as far more assertive. If, if Russia is weakened in, in some way, or it seems less assertive in, in Syria, or he was willing to give up Syria for something else. Uh, I doubt mm -hmm. they would. Uh, maybe they'd be able to give up some, some territory. Turkey seems more assertive. I'm not really sure how how, how it's going to go. Um, yeah. You, you always get people that go to cheerlead, keeping a war going in the hopes that their side will win, um, no yeah. matter what the actual costs might be. And um, it, I see hints of that, and I'm I'm worried. I'm worried that the Caesar Act is is also one of these things that just is meant to keep the war going. Um, yeah, but I mean, it, it 
it is not necessarily the war but it is meant to sort of lock the current state of general shittiness in, yeah. in place uh, rather than have Assad declare a victory and parade around the place and say he won was right all along which would of course be a difficult thing to see yeah. but but um, yeah I mean the the I think the debate on the sanctions it's I mean you there should absolutely be a debate about the sanctions sure, issue because it is a big uh, big big thing and not least because it's so central and so symbolic to the whole sort of Western engagement with 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 the conflict uh, at this point, but um, I mean Syria is collapsing for a bunch of reasons. Uh, or collapsing might be a drastic way to put it, crumbling slowly rather. But um, you have the Lebanon crisis, you have the COVID nineteen coronavirus. Uh, effects on the economy and all of that stuff and just war and, and misery and devastation but the, the the sanctions issue tends you know it 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 it, it comes on it becomes symbolic of that which way are you trying to push the conflict even if this is not the primary reason for the economic breakdown that we're seeing right now with the currency imploding and so forth it's indicative of what are you trying to achieve yeah is that actually what you wanted to happen? Okay, then great yeah. job. Um, but but it's also I, I think it's also kind of a sterile debate, meaningless debate, because the sanctions are not going to be removed no. overnight. You know, there what what is would be an important debate? I think um, I'm not saying that the sanctions should be removed overnight either. I'm just saying that's not really an option. So it's kind of pointless to just say boo there are sanctions um but what there needs to be a debate on whatever your position is on the sanctions whether you're pro caesar or anti caesar or whatever the way these sanctions impact the population uh needs to be addressed i yeah. think because that is uh you know if you ask the syrian government and its supporters they say that is the purpose they're trying to starve everyone to death which is you know not true they're not that you know European policymakers and, and, and American policymakers, they're not trying to starve Syrians to death. They think that their sanctions aren't doing any damage, but they are. Um, and I think there needs to be a debate about that. And there are a number, I mean, they, they've, they've made exemptions for aid work, for UN operations, for food and medicine and, and things like this. And the, the American sanctions are much, much harder yeah. than the European ones to start with, uh, even before CSAR. Um, but these exemptions are not working very well. No. Uh, you talk to sanctions experts, you talk to aid workers, and they'll tell you that, you know, overcompliance and, you know, what, what people refer to as the chilling effect of, of, of uh, businesses and banks and shipping companies and others just not daring to touch Syria because there's a lot of sanctions, very little profits to be made. Yeah. Uh, why would you, you know, why, why would you even get involved with that? There's only risk. There's no reward. Yeah. Uh, and and the way these exemptions are designed, maybe they can be carved out in a different way. Maybe they should include some more things. Maybe they should include some less things. I don't know. But there needs to be sort of a live debate and a live uh, reappraisal of that, I think. And uh, discussions about how to... Maybe you can set up some sort of a, a banking channel for humanitarian work so that... NGOs don't have to smuggle dollars across the border yeah. in, in bandit territory. Yeah. That's not, you know, a healthy way to conduct your business. Um, and that, that's a shame, I think, because the, the whole thing just... Syria debate is kind of like... It's been this way for a while, but it just gets worse. Yeah. It's, it's really toxic. It's like Israel-Palestine. Yeah. Uh, people just defend their camp. There's no attempt to grapple seriously with the actual problems yeah. and sort of find the incremental things that maybe we can all agree on. Um, yeah. So that's also depressing. A, a bit, man, this episode is getting depressing, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you wanted to talk about, Syria. right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's my fault. Way it ends, yeah. I, I see a lot of that. I, I, Israel, Palestine, I would never touch it with a 10 foot pole. I think I probably, I'll probably do an episode on it at some point just because I have to. Ooh. 
but yeah. I'd, I'd prefer not to so as long as I can and yeah. uh, Siri's getting that way um, and yeah. some people are getting yeah. accepted I think there's people that that have been around for a long time and they've been loud and uh, they've gotten maybe more fanatical as time has gone on and uh, yeah. or the positions have hardened and it's uh, really unfortunate that we can't use experience from other places anymore it seems like i mean i i'd look at iraq and the sanctions that happened there and they were targeted in a pre i mean the, the the narrative around it was very similar in any case i mean mm. we're only going to target mm. the regime you know this that and um mm. it didn't really matter people were still starved to death i mean pe people still had a, ter a terrible experience people who grew up under sanctions have basically mm. nothing good to say about it, even if they hated Saddam, which most people did. It, yeah. it, it, I, I couldn't, and Saddam was still around. I mean, we, he, it's not like san sanctions removed Saddam. A war did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. I mean, I think the Iraqi example is very much worth looking at, and probably other, other sanctioned economies as well, from Cuba to North Korea to to other places. Uh, Sudan comes to mind, but but there are also some really big differences I think in in between the Iraqi experience and the Syrian one, and one of them being that the Iraq was under UN sanctions, yeah. which were comprehensive, and you know every country on earth was theoretically at least supposed to True. to abide by them. Syria, for one, did not. No. <laughs> so they helped smuggle oil, but um, but the, and the other thing. So on, on the one hand, the sanctions were more comprehensive. Uh, Although, I mean, the, the way the U.S. is really going all in on sanctions against Syria is having a, a semi-global effect as well, because just because of the U.S. role in the, in the financial system, the role of the dollar and all that. But, but the other thing is that Iraq had oil, which I think is really important as yeah. well. Um, and you bottled up the regime, but the regime still had it still had patronage power, you know, yeah. it still had money, you could sell oil, oil for food and all of that, but they got around it, they smuggled some and they had some money. I mean, it was not like before sanctions, before the wars, and, but still it was, and, and Syria does not have that. No. Uh, Syria is just a much more, more of a broken up place with, with very limited resources and a regime that has been living above its resources for very long and that has foreign allies that cannot really sustain it and they will have you know they'll have to change in some way to adapt to the situation if they're not gonna uh, well not, i'm not gonna say lose power but they'll lose uh, things that they would like to keep yeah. um so so in that sense i think it's different um and i'm not sure um you know i i i, I enough economic strangulation could very well uh, do an enormous amount of damage on the Syrian regime in ways that it didn't do to Iraq, yeah. to Saddam's regime. Uh, of course, it will first have to, you know, first you have to burn through the population, yeah. but then you get to the regime. But you can do it, I think. Uh, the question is that, you know, this is not embedded in any sort of uh, deliberate policy on the U.S. end or even on the European end. Yeah. Um, no, it's not just about Trump either. Trump doesn't seem to have any sort of idea what he's doing or why. But even like below Trump, it's just it's just this idea that, you know, Iran should go out, we should have democracy, we should have, you know, regime change and, in, 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 you know, we will phrase it slightly differently as a constitutional process course, and so forth, yeah. but, but that's what it's about. Um, and that's not a that's not something you can achieve uh, as as part of a deal. It's something you can achieve as part of destroying the regime. I think this has been my view throughout the war. I was always sort of a Syria regime pessimist. They were never going to give anything. No. Uh, they they were going like like Gaddafi in in Libya. They were going to fight, and then if you you know if you bombed it enough, you could track down Bashar in a in a sewer pipe yeah. outside Latakia and kill him. That well, that was a possibility. Yeah. Uh, but it was not going to be like a, a deal where Bashar says, oh, I'm sorry, I'll invite who's on the opposition side. Okay, Abu Muhammad Jolani, yeah. <laughs> the prime minister. That, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it was never the, 
an option. And it's still not an option, I think. Yeah. It, there's no constructive end to this unless people figure out you know, an end that matches the means or means that match the end. Yeah. On that cheerful note, <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> I think we'll end the episode um, nice and pessimistically, just like Siri is at the moment. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to add that I, I hope I'm wrong about everything. And I also hope, and I'm sorry to say, I hope you're wrong about everything as well. Yeah, well, so do yeah, I. Um, yeah. I'd like to see Siri that somehow uh, Assad wakes up in the morning and he's had... Uh, several mini strokes that change his persona and uh, mm -hmm. he has the power to completely change the way the regime thinks and at the same time everyone on the rebel side both unites and has one kind of perspective and that perspective is uh, also not you know terrible and um, if if that happens that would be lovely and i i would be really yeah, it, really happy about it um, if that happens let's do an episode i will do an episode about it i'll do it even longer than this one arn lund i'd like to thank you for being on the episode and i hope to see you again soon thank you thank you for having me and i hope to be back soon and uh thanks thanks Arne. talk to you soon all right <laughs>